Let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and we'll simply be reading verse 16. This is the Lord God confronting our first parents who have just sinned against God in the garden. God has confronted the serpent and given a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is confronting Adam and Eve with the curse for their sin. Verse 16. Let's listen now to the Word of God in verse 16. To the woman He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Amen. Let's turn toward the back of our Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. The first epistle of Peter, the third chapter, verses 1-7. through 7. Once again, this is God's Word. Let's pay careful attention. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word, They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this evening, let's look back at Genesis chapter 3 as we pick up our sermon series from Genesis chapter 3. Our most recent sermon several months ago, we had considered the difference between ruling one's household well, the godly example of the elder qualified man in 1 Timothy chapter 3 versus ruling over one's household in a domineering and tyrannical way. And we did that for this reason. We considered it so that we could understand the background of chapter 3, verse 16 of the book of Genesis. Because here as the Lord confronts Eve for her sin, and as He pronounces a curse on humanity, and in particular upon Eve and upon women, fallen women, at this time the Lord describes the effect of this curse upon the marriage relationship. And you can see in in the section that we're going to be thinking about this evening, To the woman he said, and then halfway through the verse, Your desire shall be for your husband, 
and He shall rule over you. And we consider the difference between godly governance of the household by the husband or the father, the difference between that and this sort of tyrannical, unbiblical ruling over that is part of the curse. And the reason we did that is so that now when we come to consider the mindset of the fallen woman that God is describing here, her rejection of godly male leadership, we'll know what godly male leadership is. That's the reason we did that. And we, we described in great detail a number of the uh, aspects of godly male leadership. We're not going to rehearse all of those, but we talked about the need for husbands to rule and that being a prerequisite for the office of elder. 1 Timothy 3, that they rule their household well as a prerequisite for ruling and laboring in church office and in the eldership. And we recognize that husbands must not rule over in the sense that Jesus describes of church leaders lording it over the flock. There's authority, there's lordship, but not a sort of tyrannical overreach Not the kind of lordship of the Gentile kings, arbitrary, self-seeking. Rather, leadership is to be exercised as an act of service. Service is not a substitute for leadership. Men need to lead and not serve as a substitute. But leadership is an act of service, giving oneself to lead and to guide the household, even as Christ is the shepherd of His flock, the church. And we saw that husbands must rule well with understanding. Uh, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, they need to rule with understanding, uh, sensitive to those under their charge, understanding where they're coming from, sympathizing, uh, know thy flocks, as the proverb says. They must rule unapologetically, uh, not cowering and, and sort of... Uh, Uh, pretending and sitting back and no they need to take the bull by the horns they need to rule they need to govern they need to take the responsibility as well they need to rule cohesively seeking to uh, govern the family as you would be the captain of an athletic team or something like that or the coach or the manager trying to have a, a spirit of cooperation teamwork togetherness communication they need to rule by an active example Be a man of action. Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, saved His body, the church. He sacrificed Himself. He sanctifies her. He is active, washing her with water by the Word. He is nourishing the various members of His body. Rule by that active example. Rule eagerly, not shrinking back like a coward, but taking the job description and by God's grace, running with it, stepping up to the challenge, and being a man. Also ruling humbly. As Paul says of those who rule in the church, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, ourselves, your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. Jesus sets the marching orders, but leadership involves Service and service is uh, at the heart of the biblical concept of leadership. Now, what, what's being told to us in Genesis 3.16 is that as a curse for Eve's sin, 
an aspect of depravity in the lives of women having fallen into sin that women are going to have a fleshly desire to usurp over their husband. We're told, your desire shall be for your husband. This same language is used of sin crouching at Cain's door in chapter 4, verse 7. Its desire is to have you, but you should rule over it. So there's this battle for the mastery of Cain. Sin wants to rule over him. He needs to rule over it. There's this rivalry. There's this desire to usurp, to control, to master. And that's what it's saying here. Your desire as a fallen woman because of this curse shall be for your husband, for his place, for his authority, to to try and subvert his authority, to usurp control of the family or of him. And we're told that He shall rule over you. So in this fallen context, women will reject legitimate male authority, but also will be the victims of abusive male authority and and overreach. And so you see the ruling over, uh, which is an aspect of the curse and of the fall. So this is something the Lord brings to women. And we use the word feminism to describe the denial of male headship or authority. And it's a modern term, but you can see it all throughout the Bible. Feminism is a movement. Feminism is an ism. It's a school of thought. It's a philosophy of life. It's a theological doctrine. It's a political ideology. Feminism, denying this principle of legitimate male headship and authority in the family, in the church, and in the state. We saw before that 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says that there's this hierarchy. You have God, three persons of the Trinity. You have Christ, the God-man, mediator for His people. Then you have men, and then you have women. Now, Satan would like nothing more than to sow seeds of discontentment in, in the lives, in the hearts of anyone on that scale. Satan attempted to sow seeds of discontentment in the Lord Jesus Christ so that he would not humble himself in that role as a mediator. Jesus overcame that. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Satan would sow seeds of envy and discontentment in the lives and hearts of men because they don't want to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Or they don't want to submit themselves to God. They want to be God. They want to sit on the throne. Though God has made men head of the household, we know today men are not content with that. They want to be the king of the universe. They want to do what they want to do, regardless of the Bible, regardless of God or Christ. Satan would like nothing more than to sow seeds of discontentment and envy in the hearts of women. Second in command over the entire created world. Men and women have been given dominion over this world, over this earth. Men are first first place. Women are in that supportive secondary role. And yet they're the queens of the universe. But that's not enough. Satan would desire you as women to be discontent with that role. The 99th percentile of created authority on this earth And yet Satan would say it's not enough. We know that because Satan himself was envious and discontented with his place 
as perhaps the most beautiful and glorious of God's angels, Lucifer, the son of the morning, he would be like the Most High. He wasn't content to be in a position of subordination, though he was perhaps above so much in in the angelic realms. He wasn't content to play second fiddle to anyone, even God himself. So you can see the marks of Satan and his devices in feminism. The Bible describes the role of men as leaders, the role of women as helpers. You can see that in Genesis chapter 2. That's the natural order. That's the overarching theme when the Bible addresses men and women. Men lead, women help, and both roles are significant and 99th percentile over the created world, even for women themselves. So, feminism, it's satanic. And it comes to us in many forms. Typically, we think of the ideological or theoretical version of feminism that you see all over the media. As I said, a school of thought, a philosophy of life. But there is something that's far more pervasive and common, even in the church today, than ideological feminism or theoretical feminism. There's such a thing as practical feminism or behavioral feminism. Even among those who would repudiate the philosophy of life that we call feminism, or they would repudiate people who seek to preach feminism as a theological doctrine. They would reject feminism. And yet, there is a practical feminism that pervades this world. And in some ways, it's like atheism. You have your theoretical atheists. Uh, Of course, we know they're suppressing the knowledge of God But there are people who profess to be atheists in theory as their philosophy. But then there is practical atheism. There are people who live as if there is no God. Their thoughts, their words, their actions. God is not in all their thoughts. God is not in their words or their actions. They act and speak and live as if there is no God. And this is the same thing. Practical feminism, though a person may acknowledge the biblical doctrine of male headship or authority in the family, church, and the state. Nevertheless, Satan would tempt women who hold to that doctrine to adopt a pattern of speech or behavior which directly contradicts male headship and authority. A pattern of speech and behavior, really even a pattern of thought, because out of the heart the mouth speaks. So, practical feminism... This is what we're concerned about this evening. And that's what verse 16 is talking about. Make no mistake. Verse 16 is not describing theoretical feminism. Verse 16 says, Your desire shall be for your husband. This is practical. This is not a theory or a philosophy. This is a desire, a lust, a fleshly impulse. This is not an ideology. And this is not limited to people who profess a certain type of political ideology or theory. This is universal for all the daughters of Eve, as it were. Because this curse, just like the previous curse in in the verse that talks about the multiplication of sorrow in conception, pain in childbearing, we know that that all women are subject to that insofar as they give birth. 
It's universal. And so we expect that the curse here is going to be universal. And you look at the subsequent verses that describe the curse upon mankind specifically as it deals with men and the labor that they're called to engage in in this world. And you see that, that it's, it's universal. It deals with all men. And certainly all humanity returns to the dust from which it came. So we're dealing with something that affects all women, not just people who espouse a certain theory. Also, we recognize that this is, in fact, a curse from God. Practical feminism, or the practical behavioral pattern that directly contradicts male headship and authority, this is a curse from God. Now, that sounds harsh. And uh, perhaps the, you know, the, the, the sermon title could, be, could come across in a brash way, but the fact is that practical feminism is a divine curse on women. It's important for us to understand that, to believe that, that this is a punitive action of God and that it is a source of misery particular to women in this fallen world. Now, I'm not saying that there's not an equivalent with men because, of course, as I said, men have an inclination to, to despise authority, as Jude says, and to, to speak evil of dignitaries. And, of course, men, by nature, rebel against the fifth commandment to honor authority. So I'm not, I'm not speaking... Uh, I don't, I don't want to say it too strongly, but this... In particular, this verse applies to women and their particular bout with sin. And it's from God. And it's, a, it's, it's upon the woman. Recognize that feminism is not a curse on men. That's a common mistake. It's a common mistake that the, the idea that feminism is a curse upon men and so men are against it and women are for it because it's really something that hinders men and their desires in some way and their well-being. But not so. Read the text. God is speaking to the woman. The curse here is upon the woman. There's an indirect impact upon men. I'm not saying there's not an indirect negativity upon men as a result. The consequences are throughout the created world, throughout all human relationships. But this is primarily and directly a curse upon women. And that's why it's important to think about tonight. Because if you as a woman are seeking to fight and overcome the temptation to practical feminism, you need that in your arsenal to know that this is a curse. This is a plague. This is going to make your life worse. All of the promises of Satan, just like he tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, and you're going to become a god. She didn't become a god. She was cursed. And feminism has its promises. And practical feminism, the flesh itself, rising up against male authority, against your husband, whatever, that has this urge, this sense of, well, if I do this, then it'll feel good. This impulse, this appetite will be satisfied and my life's going to get better. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Because it's a curse. It's a curse of God upon women. Now, we spent... I don't know how many weeks dealing with 1 Timothy 2 and how the godly woman is victorious through childbearing, through the curse, victorious over these chastisements recorded in verse 16. 
So all of that applies here. But understand, it is a plague. It is a curse. Feminism hurts women more than it hurts men. And you can see as feminism takes root in our culture, the more it gains momentum, the more it becomes painfully obvious that this is not a movement that has any interest in preserving or enhancing the well-being of women. In fact, uh, one feminist not too long ago wrote a book, and in that book she said essentially something to the effect that the new feminism looks a whole lot like the old chauvinism. Because you see, feminism gains momentum in our culture, and yet what do we see? Women are objectified more than ever. Women are not being uplifted. Their dignity, their their intelligence and the respect and honor that we have for women, no, no, they're being objectified more and more, viewed as less than human, viewed as just in a horrific way. You you see the the pornography and and all the things on the television that are just representing women in a way that is degrading to them. So feminism has not advanced the dignity of women. It hasn't made their life better. Um, In fact, feminism hates women. Satan hates women. Satan is the architect of theoretical and practical feminism. And Satan is the oldest enemy and foe of women. He began by attacking Eve And through feminism, both theoretical and practical, he seeks to attack and assault and degrade women. You'll notice that the the rhetoric, the propaganda of feminists today treats the biblical view of women, the biblical role of women, historic human femininity that virtually all societies, to one extent or another, have acknowledged throughout history. It, It hates femininity. Feminism despises women and their, their role and their distinctive characteristics. It seeks to turn women into men because it hates women as they are. It makes women vulnerable by taking away the protection and provision that historically and biblically men were expected to provide. They were expected to protect. They were expected to be a strong tower, to... To, to be there, to take the brunt of, this, uh, of, of all that this world has to offer. The man was created by God to walk on the side of the road that's closest to the cars. Chivalry, self-sacrifice, honor, protecting women, wives, and daughters. Feminism takes that out and makes women more vulnerable than ever. Big surprise that human trafficking which targets women and children, is on the rise like never before in our feminist society. It hurts women more than it hurts men. And if we love and value women, we will hate and oppose all forms of feminism. Now, what are the symptoms of practical feminism? What are some symptoms of practical feminism? First, resentment at the mere consideration of the topic. Resentment at the mere consideration of the topic. That's a sign that we've begun to be influenced, though we might not admit it or profess it, yet in our thoughts, we've begun to be influenced by feminism. 
if we're uncomfortable, even resentful or bitter, even in the raising of the subject. Second Timothy 4 verse 3 says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Again, that's the, that's the same idea from Genesis 3.16. These sinful desires. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The biblical view of men and women is not necessarily the quickest way to church growth or to an increase in attendance. The fact is that there are many professing Christians who simply do not want to hear what the Bible says about this topic. They're scared away from it. They will not hear the law of the Lord. They would rather have a pastor or preacher who qualifies this doctrine to death than to hear it straight from the Word of God. So this is a sign. This is a symptom of practical feminism. You see it in Titus 2.15 after Paul describes the teaching that he has that Titus is to bring to the members of the church in Crete concerning the roles of older men and older women and younger women and biblical marriage roles. And it says at the end, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Why? Because perhaps even in that context, people would despise this teaching, this doctrine. And we need to be very careful when there's any teaching in the Word of God that we're unwilling to hear. Romans chapter 8 says this is a very dangerous warning sign of our spiritual condition. We're told, verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So, the teaching concerning submission to authority, whether it's men to civil magistrates, whether it's wives to husbands, whether it's children to parents, if we will not hear the fifth commandment applied to our situation, we're not just despising the law. We're at enmity with God. We're carnally minded, which is death. We view the law of God like the wicked kings and rulers in Psalm 2. Cast these restrictive cords, these shackles, these handcuffs away from us. Be careful, that's a symptom of practical feminism. Secondly, when we excuse or minimize practical feminism, that's a sign that we've embraced it. When we excuse or minimize disrespect of a husband's authority. And you know the the many excuses that we can come up with. All of us know these excuses. We come up with them when we try to excuse ourselves from disobeying our parents or disobeying the government or whatever it is. Uh, When we we don't honor authority, men as well as women know we're very uh, easily prone to come up with excuses or to minimize violations of the fifth commandment. But Romans 12 tells us that there is no excuse. There's no excuse for doing evil. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. So even if you can establish that the male authority that you're rebelling against has done something evil, 
I'm not talking about abuse where your, your life is in danger or your safety. That's a different story. But I'm saying evil. That the person is being disobedient to the Word, as Peter says. That, that they're engaging in evil. We do not have a right to repay evil for evil. In fact, verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is the way to overcome a, a husband's sinful abuse of authority? How do you overcome that? Right? I thought feminism was supposed to promote the strength of women. That women are going to overcome. Well, the Bible says you overcome not by sinning against your husband and dishonoring him, but the way that you overcome and the way that you're victorious over that evil is by having a Christ-like attitude, submitting to authority and obeying biblical principles not excusing or minimizing sin. That's a symptom. A third symptom is chronic opposition. Or, as the Scriptures say, a spirit of contention. And the Proverbs at least once speak of a contentious man. And so men need to take this seriously. But by, the, by and large, the emphasis in the Proverbs when it deals with this issue is a contentious woman or a contentious wife. Now, I know that's not politically correct, but it's in the Bible. We need to reckon with it. We need to take it seriously. The Bible wouldn't make these statements if we, if we weren't supposed to take them seriously. So, Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And the idea there is someone who is murmuring, complaining, arguing, seeking to entrap her husband in a sort of gotcha moment to to undermine his credibility or to refute what he's saying and just a sort of divisive, contentious, irritable spirit. Proverbs 21 verse 19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. So their anger is brought in to the idea of contentious, biting and devouring and, and quarreling. That kind of attitude. Proverbs 25, verse 24. It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And then chapter 27, verse 15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Now, lest you begin to start to try to psychoanalyze Solomon understand Christ is the wisdom of God. The the Holy Spirit authored these things. This is not Solomon who has a thousand wives venting. No, this is the Holy Spirit. This is God Himself. This is Christ, the wisdom of God, saying, ladies, that you need to be careful of a contentious spirit. And we'll see the consequences of it in a moment. But beware of this. Philippians 2 says that we should do everything without complaining or arguing. That contentious spirit is a symptom of practical feminism. Fourthly, a refusal to be taught. A refusal to be taught. So, in the book of Genesis, God appears to Abraham. And He says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do in bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and some various other things that God reveals to him. Genesis 18 And uh, verse 17. Listen to what it says. 
And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that... This is so crucial, and it applies to every Christian man. Why has God established a relationship of friendship with Abraham? Why does God know Abraham and Abraham knows the Lord? Why? I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So the means by which God's kingdom would expand globally is wrapped up in Abraham, the father of the faithful, a wonderful example for godly Christian men, Abraham commanding and instructing his children and his household. And that includes his wife. So this is a great means of blessing. You know, again, by God's grace, if it's done right, this is a great means of blessing and expanding the kingdom of God on earth and the fulfillment of God's promises, all these things. This is a means to that end. And ladies, understand, wives, understand that you want to be promoting and furthering that agenda. You don't want to hinder your husband's ability to teach and instruct the family. You, you, you want to be there to support him, not to hinder him with a divisive or contentious spirit, arguing and murmuring. You want to be there to help him to do that so that your family will be blessed from generation to generation and so that the church will be blessed throughout the ages. And in order to do that, you have to set an example for your children to have a teachable spirit and to seek to learn from your husband. Now, all husbands are different. God gives different gifts and different measures of knowledge to different men. If you're a single woman, look for a husband that's going to have maximum biblical knowledge so that you're already setting yourself up in a good position where it's easier for you to be teachable because, because he has something to teach. Be looking for that as a criteria for a godly husband. But in any event, uh, if it's a Christian husband, that husband has the Holy Spirit and is learning and is able more and more, hopefully, to teach. And, and women, you need to, wives, you need to be teachable. 1 Corinthians 14.35 tells us, in fact, that women aren't to speak in church, but they're to bring their questions to their husband so that he can instruct them at home. And that requires, that presupposes a teachable spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 26 says that Jesus not only gave up himself as a sacrifice to save the church, that's often quoted and rightly so as a blueprint for biblical husbands, but it then says that Jesus as an example to husbands washes his church, his bride, with water by the word. So that presupposes that there is sin, there is dirt to be cleansed, and of course the husband needs to be cleansed too, but there's dirt to be cleansed in the household, and ladies, you need to seek to encourage and further the agenda of your husband, washing you and the family with water by the word in family worship every day, because ultimately he's the instrument of Christ in doing that. So if, if, if you're unwilling to be taught, if you're offended by the very thought of being taught by your husband, that's, that's a sign, that's a symptom of practical feminism. The, the last symptom is 
a tyrannical spirit. A tyrannical spirit. Feminism claims to be opposed to male tyranny, but you get the sense, in fact, that feminism envies male tyranny. Envies male tyranny and, and seeks to take the worst forms of masculinity and then, and then ape it and reproduce it. And you, you, you can see that the feminist movement is not particularly known for its gentle spirit or anything like that. It's, it's very tyrannical. And, and the fact is that for all of us, our ability to submit to authority is an indication of how we will use authority when we come into that position. So again, ladies, if you're looking for a godly husband, look for someone who is submissive to authority, submissive in the church, submissive to your father in the dating or courtship, submissive to authority, because Titus 1.9 actually says that those who are to be placed in authority in the church are those who hold to the trustworthy word as they have been taught. So their teachability and absorbing biblical truth equips them to then exercise authority and teach and govern others. So it's true for elder candidates. It's true for men that you would uh, seek to uh, be married to your daughters. It, it's, it's a prerequisite for using authority that you're willing to submit to it. And so practical feminism because it doesn't submit to male authority, it, it, it has this strain of violating the fifth commandment that comes out when that person is in authority. Ladies, do, do you disrespect and dishonor your husband, and then when you're in authority over the children, do you lord it over the children? That would be a symptom of practical feminism. Well, there are some consequences of practical feminism that we need to recognize, the dangers, the dangerous consequences, and it involves losing. Peter says that by submitting to authority and embracing the the biblical Christ-centered view of women in the scriptures, as exemplified by Sarah, by embracing that, you win. You win. You, You win your husband. By submitting, by having a a gracious spirit, a meek and quiet spirit, you will win your husband without a word. So we want to win. I trust we all want to win. Romans 12, we want to overcome. We want to be victorious. And practical feminism means, ladies, that you lose. You lose your husband. You don't win your husband. You lose him. And though we, we cannot in any way encourage or countenance men who are offended by their wife and then they abandon the family or they abandon their wife or they go to the vacation home. I'm not at all saying that's a good thing. That's a cowardly thing to do. But I am saying that when there is a contentious spirit, the book of Proverbs says that that's the temptation, is that the man is is not going to have an incentive. He's he's, going to be frightened, really, to be around his wife. Better the corner of the housetop. Better the wilderness. It's Chinese water torture. It's the continual dripping. Um, You know, you lose your husband. You alienate him. You push him away. Now again, we need to man up and not run away. But I'm saying, women, you're, you're tempting him in that direction. You're alienating him. Interestingly, in recent months, feminists have been coming out and writing articles and blog posts advocating that it should be not only legal but socially acceptable 
for women to be able to pay money for intimate male companionship, that this is something that should now be okay, this should be normal, and I think that reflects something. That's a, that's a, a commentary on feminism, that it's gotten to the point, it, if you're having to pay for male companionship, that's not a good thing. Feminism has left a train wreck of broken relationships and alienation in its wake, and you lose your husband. You don't want to lose your husband. You want to win your husband. Win him to the truth. Win him to a godly marriage relationship. Secondly, you lose your beauty. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain and fleeting. But Proverbs 31, the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She has the beauty of a meek and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. We sang in Psalm, or we're going to sing in Psalm 45, that uh, when we submit ourselves to our heavenly husband, and, and we obey his commands, and we humble ourselves under his throne and his scepter in obedience to him, that, and we leave behind the world, we leave behind our Father's house as it were, we leave behind the world, and we cling to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, that we are beautiful and He delights upon that beauty, the beauty of holiness. When we fall into practical feminism and insubordination, we're forfeiting, we're losing that beauty that God has given. Thirdly, practical feminism causes you to lose your credibility. And we know this again, men as well as women, when we're in the workplace, if we have a contentious spirit, that's the easiest way to get fired. That is, the, that is one of the easiest ways to get fired in the workplace. A contentious spirit, crying wolf, bringing uh, argumentativeness and, and uh, complaining and all of these things, quarreling into the workplace. Uh, authority figures in the office are going to try to weed that out immediately. And when, when we are argumentative, we lose our credibility. People stop listening because they've heard it all before. Proverbs 9, verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. Now, that's a, that, that's a strong statement. I'm just going to let, let the Holy Spirit apply that for us here. But, but recognize we lose our credibility when we deviate from biblical wisdom. By contrast, Proverbs 31, verse 26 she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. Notice, and, and this applies to me, that applies to everybody, but notice her default is that her mouth is closed, and then she deliberately opens her mouth. Why? Because she has something wise and kind and charitable and beneficial to say. She's an example to all of us. And that's how we gain credibility, by, by speaking when we have something to say, by raising an issue when there's a substantial issue and not at every single turn of every single thing that comes up. Having that selective discernment to know when to open our mouth and address that issue. And her husband trusts in her. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He, he respects her for that reason. Another consequence of practical feminism is that a, a woman will lose her peace and her joy. 
of the Proverbs 31 woman. She's trusting in God, even in the midst of an imperfect marriage relationship, trusting in God to be her help, her defense. She will rejoice in the time to come. She's not enslaved to fear. Feminism tells women, if you acknowledge male headship and authority, you are going to be a doormat. It causes you to, to, to be overwhelmed and enslaved with fear. It's not liberating, it's enslaving. True women's liberation is found in obedience to God's perfect law of liberty, not in the fear-mongering that we see. And so it steals that joy. We can't rejoice in the time to come. We can't have that hope and expectation of God being with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us, giving us the strength to finish the race. Uh, We're fearful and we panic and we disrespect authority as a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, 1 Peter 3.6 says that ladies should do good and not be afraid of any terror. In addition, the last consequence is that practical feminism causes you to lose your strength. Interestingly, again, feminism is saying, oh, this will make you strong. You're going to be Rosie the Riveter. This is going to make you strong and powerful. But at the end of the day, practical feminism takes away your influence, takes away your credibility, takes away that praiseworthy usefulness that you see lauded throughout Proverbs 31. The virtuous woman. And in Hebrew, that word virtuous, it means powerful. In fact, listen to some of the translations of this word throughout the Hebrew Bible. Army. Power. Force, valiant, might, strength, war, riches, wealth, substance. The true powerful influential woman is described in her subordinate yet exalted role in the home, in the scriptures, particularly in Proverbs 31. And as Proverbs 25 verse 15 says, By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded. Now let's think of the husband, the ruler of the household. How are you going to persuade your husband on an issue that you raise? By long forbearance, that husband is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. There's the powerful woman. Not the weak, enslaved feminist, but the powerful, godly woman who embraces her part in subordination to her husband and her part in authority managing the household. That's the powerful and strong woman. That's the woman that makes Rosie the Riveter look like Tinkerbell. That's the woman who has so many godly examples in the scriptures. And and just think of the book of Judges. Think of Jael pounding the tent peg into the head of God's enemy. Godly women like Proverbs 31, like Jael, like Deborah, a mother in Israel who embraced the biblical role that God has given, uh, crush the serpent underfoot with all of his temptations to envy and discontentment. In closing, the solution, the solution to practical feminism. How do we overcome that evil with good? And I don't have a bunch of points here, just very simply we need to submit to our heavenly husband. Ladies, you need to recognize that your earthly husband, 
is not ultimately the issue. It's not the horizontal marriage relationship that really is at issue here. You need to submit to your heavenly husband. Get that noble theme of the glory of Christ, His beauty, His gracious words, His victorious power, His meekness, truth, and righteousness from Psalm 45. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Maybe your husband's disobedient to the word. Maybe you're weary. Maybe you're heavy laden. Maybe you're beleaguered and tempted. And like we heard in the psalm meditation, Psalm 77, overwhelmed, Jesus says, I am meek and lowly of heart. Come to me. I will be your husband. And trust in my wisdom. The law of God, the principle of male headship, was authored by Jesus Christ. Do you trust that He has come up with a blueprint for marriage, for the family, the church, and the state that is going to enhance your well-being and bring Him glory? Do you believe that? You you have to believe in His wisdom. You, You have to believe in His grace that where sin has abounded and this curse has been felt day in and day out, it's wreaked havoc on your life, on your marriage. Um... Where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. I can do all things through Him who gives me the strength. Do you believe His grace? Do you believe His example? He became he, the infinite Son of God, infinitely condescended Himself to take upon human flesh the form of a bondservant, a slave. He submitted to the law of God, which He decreed. He submitted to His heavenly Father. He submitted to all kinds of suffering. He obeyed and fulfilled the law of God in every respect. Are you willing to follow His perfect example of submission? Because if we hate submission, if if we are repulsed by submission, we're repulsed by Christ. If that's our reaction to the role of women in the marriage, that we're against it, then we're against Christ. We don't think He's beautiful. We don't appreciate His example. And finally, His love. We'll sing it in a moment, but just let the love of Christ compel you. Psalm 45, verse 10, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. Forget your sin in Adam, the cursed original sin that, that is in your flesh that gives you a desire to usurp and disrespect. Forget those things. Leave it behind. So the King will greatly desire your beauty because He is your Lord. Worship Him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves before Your throne your authority in and through the mediator whom you have provided for us, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners. We are rebels. Our sinful flesh, even as believers, has all the marks of Satan's rebellion in it. And so we pray that you would give us victory over these sinful desires to usurp authority. We pray that the biblical view of women and the liberation that it causes, and the victory that is available to us through Christ, that you would write these things upon our hearts, that we would know Christ and the power of His resurrection in this area. We ask in His name. Amen.